Good morning, ministers. How does God make the minister? This is the question we began asking and we hope to be able to answer through this brief study on the making of the minister. How does God make the minister? How does God cast vision into the hearts of men and women so strong, so inescapable that they become willing to sacrifice, to redirect their entire lives, and even to die in service to God's call? How does God make the minister? These are the questions we hope to ask and to somewhat answer. But there's another question. That question is, why do we want to know this? Why do we want to know how God makes a minister? What will we gain if we can identify a roadmap or a process for the way God calls us? What is there to gain from the answer to this question and my hope for us? is that as we consider this question and as we together review the call of Ezekiel that we will look back over our own lives and recall whether or not we have had similar experiences. Whether we have already been called into God's service in some particular area, to some particular field, and that we might gain a certainty and a confidence to embark upon God's assignment, to embrace the assignment that God has given to each of us. Because ministry without certainty is ineffective for those who serve, And it's nerve-wracking for the minister who has not settled in his heart that God has in fact called him to own a part of the mission field. Ministry without certainty is ineffective. Every child of God has been given a new heart. Each one of us who is saved, we've been given a new heart. A heart that loves deeply. A heart that desires the best for all people. Every child of God has or should have a heart that desires to serve, a heart of compassion. And we all know that compassion is paramount in the Christian life. But compassion is not calling. Compassion is not calling. There is a difference. What's the difference between compassion and calling? What is the difference between acts of compassion and the calling of God on our lives? Well, first of all, godly compassion expresses itself in the heart of every believer through acts of kindness, through acts of generosity and acts of mercy, compassion. 
And all of these are very important characteristics for the child of God. Compassion in my heart is a personal fervor that ignites passionate resolve and determination for me to intervene in the lives of those who are in need. That's compassion. Jesus was oftentimes in the Gospels filled with compassion. And by compassion, I become willing to share my private resources with those who are in some specific need, some specific crisis. I give of my material possessions as God has given to me. First John chapter three, verse 17. John asked the penetrating question. Whoever has worldly goods and sees his brother or sister in need and closes his heart against him how does the love of God remain in him? How can you be a Christian? How can you be a follower of Jesus and not have compassion? Compassion encourages us to give up our worldly goods, my time, my talents, and even my treasure, all worldly goods. And Jesus promised the recipient would glorify God which is in heaven. That's compassion. Acts of compassion call, should cause the recipient to glorify God, to thank God for my generosity. And so then, so then, what is the main difference between acts of compassion and calling? The main element that causes calling to be different from acts of compassion is simply this. The whole devotion of one's life. The whole devotion of one's life. The compassionate person is moved to do acts of kindness whenever they see a need. But the person who is called to the ministry of mercy the person who is called to acts of service by God, they give their entire lives to seeking out needs and filling the needs of the people. Compassion then is occasional, based upon the circumstances, based upon the situation, but calling is continuous. You've heard about the migrants that were flown from Texas to Martha's Vineyard last week. And no doubt by now you've heard how the people on that small island got together and served those people and gave generously to them. What a beautiful picture, what a beautiful scene it is to see compassion in action in such a profound way. As they serve these destitute people who've been dropped off with no idea of where they are, where they're going from here, the community encircled them and cared for them. Some people brought food and clothing. One store donated underwear. Another store gave out cell phones. All acts of compassion in response to the occasion. But there is a woman who serves in the church where the migrants were being housed. 
Certainly she has compassion for those who, in need, who are in need, but she also has a calling from God to such a ministry. And so what the community was doing on this specific occasion, she spends her days and her nights doing. When the lights are off, when the cameras are gone, she is continually concerned about and serving those who are, she's called. She has devoted her life to that ministry. It's beautiful that they gave, it's beautiful that they showed compassion. Compassion is necessary, compassion is significant. But the difference between compassion and calling is that calling is the devotion of my entire life to the ministry. That woman is committed. She's been called by God not only to serve the most obvious of needs, but to be and to remain on high alert and attuned to the needs of all others around her and somehow to serve to meet their need. And this, this is another difference between calling and compassion. You see, compassion gives and serves out of what a person has. But calling gives and serves out of what God has. You might want to write that down. <laughs> Compassion gives and serves out of what a person has. But through calling we give and we serve, not out of what we have, but out of God's storehouse. Major difference there between compassion and calling. This woman serving in the church on that island, she doesn't have much. Certainly she doesn't have the means to give to all of those who may be in need. So how does she do it? How does she accomplish her calling? This woman accomplishes her call by the call that she has received from God. And with God's call comes God's provision. Where God sends, God defends. And where God calls, God provides. How does she do it? She does it by the call of God that has been placed on her life. The person who is called often is called to give what they do not possess. The person who is called often is called to give not out of what they possess. Calling gives and serves by the power and by the strength of God alone. That's important to understand when you're considering your calling, when you're considering going into ministry. You know, they have these tests you can take. What are you passionate about? What are your gifts and proclivities? What do you like to do? As if somehow you're going to discover God's call through your own abilities, through your own proclivities, by your own strength. Take a strength finder and find out where your strengths might lie. That's not the way it works with calling. It may work that way with compassion, but not with calling. God very often calls his ministers to give what they do not have. That's the difference between compassion and calling. And the final difference between acts of compassion and calling has to do with purpose. 
It can be, and it often is the case, that the person who acts out of compassion wants to fill a temporal need so that God can get the glory, and that's very important. That's no small thing. But the person who works out of her calling has only one primary aim and goal. We all know what that is. It's the saving of souls. It is the building up of the body of Christ. It's always the same purpose, always the same goal. The vision of God is to save all of mankind. And whomever God calls, God is calling to participate in this ministry of evangelism and discipleship. The purpose is always the same. And so in summary, with one summary sentence, I can say it like this. Calling is devotion to a life of offering spiritual goods beyond myself with the sole purpose of winning the loss for Jesus Christ and building up the body of Christ for his service and for his glory. That's a long sentence, I know. That's a long definition, and that's also a tall order. This is why it is necessary that God casts holy vision into the hearts of men and women. This is why God imbues us with power beyond ourselves. Because the work that God calls us to do, to accomplish in the world, always requires more than we have, more than we are, and more than we can do in our own strength, always. More than you have, more than you are, and more than you can do. So that the purpose of God's calling then is to enlarge our Christian compassion into a God-sized compassion. The purpose of God's calling in our lives is to supplant our human solutions with God-sized solutions. The purpose of God's calling is to infuse our natural strengths and abilities with the power of Almighty God. And finally, finally, the purpose of calling is to have our focus adjusted away from our own interests in the direction of the gaze of God. This is the purpose of calling. This is a lot to take in. And in my own strength and in your own strength, you could never make this journey. In my own strength, I could not make these monumental transformations in my own life to the way that I think, to the way that I live, to the way that I act. I couldn't do this without the power of the Holy Spirit. But the calling of God changes us. And in this preamble to the book of Ezekiel, we can see that God, by his calling, is about to change Ezekiel forever. As about the 30th year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while Ezekiel was by the river Chebar, among the exiles, the heavens were opened and Ezekiel saw visions of God. Hmm. This sounds incredible, doesn't it? 
Ezekiel saw visions of God. Wouldn't you like to see a vision of God? Raise your hand. You don't, don't, don't answer too quickly. <laughs> don't answer that too quickly. Because while to have vision of God would certainly be a great privilege, you should also understand that such a vision can also be traumatizing. Such a vision of God can shake your very foundations. The foundations of your self-identity, the foundation of your reasoning, even the foundation of your existence as you come face to face with the one who holds your very life in his hands. It can be traumatizing. It can be paralyzing. When I was in the military in 1986, General Schwarzkopf was our commanding general of the army. And President George H.W. Bush had decided that we should leave out of Iraq after we caused them to stand down while all of their tanks were lined up across the desert. And General Schwarzkopf disagreed. And Schwarzkopf said, while we have them all here, we may as well destroy them right now. Why are we going backwards? We should go ahead and take care of this so we don't have to take care of this in a few more years. Turns out he was right. But, but Schwarzkopf was revered. We revered, I loved him. He was a man's man, he was a crazy soldier, I loved him. And I was at the Pentagon, taking care of some un-Pentagon business, nothing very special. I was at the Pentagon on some un-Pentagon-like un business. And he was walking down the hallway. And I was walking along and I saw him coming and I just stopped, I was paralyzed. That's what's called. And so I'm trying to, how am I gonna salute? I gotta make sure I do this just right. What am I gonna say if he asks me a question? I was paralyzed by his authority, by his power, by his greatness. A man paralyzed me because he had a title. Imagine coming face to face with the almighty God. It'd be a great privilege. It'd be somewhat traumatizing. It would be debilitating. It would be ground-shaking, earth-shattering. Hmm. It has to be a challenging experience to come into such close encounter with the one who is holy through and through. And in that moment as he approaches, to also recognize that I am a sinner who is completely undone. And the closer he gets, the more I see my own sin. The Holy One is coming closer to me and I wanna grab him, but something is pushing me back, my own sin. I, I can't, I can't, I can't let you get too close. You burn me, I'll die. Isaiah fell down and said, I am a wretch undone. I'm a dead man. Standing in the presence of God, he was traumatized. <laughs> Shaken to the core at the holiness of Almighty God. Even the most pious saint find himself trembling in that presence. But you know what, even, even without the vision, even without a vision of God, 
The call of God is challenging enough all by itself. To sense that God is putting you up to bat. To sense that God is drawing you into service to actually be his mouthpiece, to actually be a spokesperson for the kingdom of God, giving you license to speak on his behalf. When you really stop and think about it, the calling all by itself is challenging. Whether he calls me to be a spokesperson on my job at work or whether he calls me to be an emissary in a soup line, the call of God, I'm talking about the real call of God, it's formidable. And so there walks Ezekiel, thinking his own thoughts, minding his own business, which wasn't much, disappointed, and in the theological stupor that shone on the faces of all the children of Israel after they were evicted from God's promised land. They're all in spiritual shock, in theological amazement. There he walks by himself by the river Chebar, and he has this unique spiritual experience. Last week, I briefly described the spiritual experiences of some of the prominent men of God throughout the Old Testament. I told you about Moses, I told you about Jacob, and how they were called. I took us to the book of Acts, to the day of Pentecost, to give us a glimpse of what that spiritual experience looked like for them on that fateful day. But every spiritual experience is unique. Every spiritual experience is uniquely designed to draw us out of our very intimate and specific ways of viewing and living in the world. Every calling is unique. Billy Graham says, it was 1939 and he was working part-time at a college on a golf course and it was nighttime and he was walking along, along and suddenly he heard the voice of God call him to preach. And right there on the 18th hole, the call was so formidable that Billy Graham fell down on his face on the wet turf, prostrate before God. Billy Graham had a spiritual experience. But a few years later, after Billy accepted his call to preach, God called Billy Graham again, and this time, this time Billy Graham was going to need more power to accomplish what God was asking him to do. And so God sent a man to Billy Graham and asked this question. Now, Billy Graham's already a preacher. He's already kind of popular. This brother comes to Billy Graham and says, have you received the filling of the Holy Spirit? Well, you're already preaching, Billy. What? Why do you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit? You already got a ministry. What's he talking about? Billy Graham says he was curious. He said, I've never, I've read about it. I've never experienced it. And he and the man in his hotel room knelt down on their knees. He said, all you have to do, Billy, is ask for it. And Billy Graham testifies that he felt empowered by the Holy. He had another, more powerful spiritual experience. Billy Graham, yeah. The spiritual experience is necessary to accomplish the calling that God places on your life. 
It takes more than just compassion. It takes more than just an interest in doing good for people in the world. No, it takes more than that to accomplish God's kingdom purpose in the world. It takes power. Because whether we like to think of it in these terms or not, it is true that there is a war going on. And if you don't have spiritual power, you may not be able to stand against the wiles of our adversary. There is a war going on. God imbued Billy Graham with power to go into all kinds of countries across the globe where they practice all kinds of religion, all kinds of demonic spirits, all kinds of trouble. Billy needed power. God gave him power. As Jesus Christ promised, he gave him power over all the power of his adversary. And he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ and opened blinded eyes around the globe uh, uh, by the power of God. I've told you on, on a couple occasions here that, <laughs> that Billy Graham is one of the least interesting preachers I've ever heard. I stand by that claim. Billy Graham is one of the least interesting preachers I have ever heard. One of the most boring, to me, preachers I've ever heard. But you don't need to be very entertaining, obviously. You don't need to be very, you don't need to have many oratorical skills, obviously. What you need is a calling and power. They were interviewing Billy Graham and said, so, so how is it working? How are all these people coming to Christ? Every time you preach, oh, what is the secret? And simple Billy Graham's only said this. I just repeat what the apostles said over and over again. And it just keeps working. Huh? Wait, that, that's the answer? You just keep saying what they said? Yes. When you're called, it works like that. It doesn't take a lot of your own human energy or ingenuity or innovation. All it takes is a confidence in the word of God and the calling and anointing of God on your life. <laughs> you need a spiritual experience. Hmm. Your own unique spiritual experience. Each one of us who has been called has been called in a way that leaves an indelible impression upon our hearts for a lifetime. It is very often the case that the scope of one's ministry determines the manner in which God calls him. The scope of your ministry may determine the way or the manner in which God calls. Ezekiel's ministry is going to be arduous. Ezekiel's ministry is going to be painful. Ezekiel is being sent to a people who have no interest either in his message or in the God who they feel has betrayed them. Ezekiel's ministry is going to be a complete uphill battle. It's going to be dangerous and lonely. Ezekiel is going to be hated by his enemies as well as by his own countrymen. His wife is going to die and God is going to command Ezekiel to not mourn her dying so that he can use it as a sign to the way he feels about his people. No one could do that in their own strength. Ezekiel is going to have a hard, a difficult, and a complicated ministry. 
more difficult than most of the other prophets in the Old Testament. <laughs> I find this interesting. That of all the prophets in the Old Testament, psychoanalysts are most intrigued by Ezekiel. <laughs> Psychiatrists are intrigued by Ezekiel. And many psychoanalysts, upon reading and analyzing the book of Ezekiel, listening to his message and watching the way he carries himself, the way that he acts, they have assessed his psychological state. Dr. E.C. Broom concluded that Ezekiel is a true psychotic, capable of great religious insight but exhibiting a significant amount of diagnostic characteristics. Catatonia, narcissistic masochistic conflict, schizophrenic withdrawal, general anxiety, delusions of grandeur, delusions of persecution. In short, he says, Ezekiel suffers from a paranoid condition, common, in many great spiritual leaders. Ezekiel was a nut, he says. He thinks Ezekiel is crazy. And when you read some of Ezekiel's statements, when you envision many of the signs that Ezekiel was called to convey to the people, you can kind of see where he's coming from. You can see how one might draw the conclusion that he's not all there, that he may be somewhat unhinged. Have you ever read the book of Ezekiel? Yeah. He's not crazy though. Ezekiel has been assigned to carry a message that is so hard. A message that is so dark from chapter four all the way to the book, to the chapter 33, it is just a dark message. Difficult to read, difficult to imagine, and especially difficult to be the minister tasked with delivering this message. It was a hard message. Not just for Jerusalem, not just for Israel. It was a hard message for the world. He goes down a list of countries and warns them what's gonna happen. That had to be a hard, dark ministry. Hmm. That's his assignment. Ezekiel is being assigned to live under the hand of God's unbridled rage. And living under such a hand in his own human strength would have been enough to drive him insane. But Ezekiel's not crazy, as some may suppose, no. Ezekiel is called. And within the call is the power to stand tall in the furnace of God's indignation with mind unsinged by the flames. The scope of his ministry is world-encompassing and highly unwelcomed. It is the most unique message of all the prophets in its breadth and in its threats. His assignment is quite unique. 
His assignment therefore would require a call so unique, a call that was so tailored to strengthen him in all the right places so that his human frame would not be crushed under the weight of the ministry. And so the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest. It came directly from God's mouth to his ears. No intermediary, no messenger. God himself spoke to Ezekiel. He spoke to Ezekiel directly, not only because of the scope of Ezekiel's ministry, but also because of the depth of Ezekiel's woundedness. I was listening to the news this morning, and they were talking about those 40 who were sent to Martha's Vineyard. And the lady in the church was asking questions about what the journey had been like from Venezuela to America's border. And the young lady took out her cell phone and started showing her pictures. She said, well, well there were 80 of us when we started. But he died, he died, he got, he got stuck in the mud, we couldn't get him out, he died. And that little girl, she was so sweet, she's dead. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's here, he's here. But he, he's there too, he died, he died along the way. Sunstroke, there was no medicine. And the woman said she was just sitting there thinking, imagining what it must have been like just to be walking along with people, they're just dying. Another one dead. Your friends, you've gotten to know these people, you've been traveling together for over a month, you know these people, and they're just dying all around you. Imagine how psychologically wounded those people are. But then imagine Ezekiel taken from his homeland after they laid siege to the country, burned down the temple, destroyed everything, killed all manner of people, then marched them across the desert all the way to Babylon. Imagine how many people died along the way. Imagine how many people Ezekiel saw drop dead in the desert. How many of his friends, how many of his cohorts, how many of his associates died in the wilderness as they walked along. Imagine the trauma. Ezekiel is severely wounded. He's walking along this river because he's trying to find some solace, some therapy, some peace. He's wounded. The last thing on his mind is ministry. He's confused, discombobulated, in spiritual trauma and shock. It's going to take a lot to get Ezekiel to sign on to any ministry. It's going to take an awful lot to get Ezekiel to sign on to any calling. He's wounded. He's injured. Hmm. God spoke to Ezekiel directly because Ezekiel was wounded. And the call of God works very similarly in our own lives. I'll tell you a secret. Every minister of God is a wounded healer. Every minister of God is a wounded healer. And until you've been wounded, you are not fit to work in ministry. That sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? 
It is the womb from which your power comes. <laughs> it is the womb from which God uses you the most. I say it to you guys all the time, that your misery is your ministry. God works in your brokenness and in your weakness, not in your talents and not in your strength. God works in your weakness. His strength is made perfect. When you are brought low, Ezekiel has been brought low. And every minister of God is a wounded heel about it. While the call of God does not always wipe away all of our pain, we have to be healed at least to the degree where our injuries do not cause us to injure the people of God. That's important. I'll say it again. You may not be completely healed, but before you answer the call of God, before you go into ministry, you should ensure that you are healed at least to the degree where your injuries do not injure the people that God has called you to serve. Ezekiel is in deep spiritual and psychological pain. Deeply wounded within, brought lower than low, subjugated and degraded. The question is, how does he get from that place of silent desperation and pining away within? To the place of ministry. How does, how does God make ministers? How does God take broken pieces, broken vessels on his own? Ezekiel could never have answered God's call. And even if he did answer the call out of his own strength, he would end up doing more harm than good. I say this Lamenting. That there is no scarcity of emotionally sick Christian leaders in our churches today. There is no scarcity of emotionally sick Christian leaders in our churches today. That's the truth. Wounded leaders who have refused to be healed. Most of them, many of them probably not even called, but willing and wanting to do something great for God. But their wounds leak all over the people of God and shape believers into forms that are more sick than their own. Wounded, unhealed, uncalled. Leaders who have been thoroughly called. Leaders who have submitted to the call, heart, mind, and soul are far less likely to become leakers, wounders, leaders who injure. Because the call of God is designed to heal the wounds of the minister so that the minister does not become a liability in the kingdom of God. Every minister to some degree is a liability to the work of God. Did you know that? Every human that God enlists into his service is to some degree a liability to God's work because we still have flesh. But the degree to which one is a liability will depend upon how thoroughly she embraces God's call and how much he relies more on the call of God than he does on his own strength, on his own mind. So there sits wounded Ezekiel by the river. 
And there the hand of the Lord came upon him to heal him, to comfort him, to empower him, but most of all, to grab hold of Ezekiel, to shake him out of his spiritual stupor, to shake him out of his bed of despair and depression, to move him out of self-pity and doubt, and to relocate him to a place of divine rest and quiet from which he can see and he can hear and he can pay attention to the words that God is about to speak to him. There by the river, the hand of God came upon him. Here is what Ezekiel testifies. He says, as I looked, behold, behold. This word behold signifies the fact that whatever he saw arrested his complete attention. Behold. As I was walking along, behold, and that's what the call of God does to us. The call of God grabs our attention. The call of God is not something that you can just turn away from or turn off and ignore. No matter how you might try to ignore God's call, the call of God just keeps getting louder and louder. Because by the time God calls you, God has already made his decision. God has already chosen you, and he will not repent. And he will not relent. My father was called to preach. And my father did not want to preach the gospel. And he would be sitting sometimes. And he would just jump up and say, no, no, I'm not doing it. Who are you talking to? What are you, what's wrong with you? No, I'm not doing it. He'd walk out, storm out the doors. What's wrong with dad? Mom would say, God's calling him. <laughs> he, he doesn't want to go. <laughs> Jonah. Jonah wasn't going. Mm -hmm. He paid a price for that. The call of God grabs your attention. It will not let you go. Here's some interesting questions for you, though. Was Ezekiel even ready for the call? Was Ezekiel busy night and day watching and praying and fasting for the call? Was Ezekiel even attuned to spiritual things? Maybe not. There are some signs in this call narrative that we're going to get to later on down the road. There are some, some signs in this call narrative that maybe Ezekiel wasn't so excited about serving God in the capacity that God was assigning him. From examples within this very text, it appears that God almost had to force feed Ezekiel the scroll three times. God had to repeat the call over Ezekiel's life two times. God had to warn Ezekiel in chapter 2 verse 8 to not be rebellious. It doesn't sound like Ezekiel was really on board with this call. The Holy Spirit has to enter into Ezekiel and set him on his feet after God commands him to stand and he won't. Chapter 2, verse 2. Chapter 3, verse 3, even after receiving the call of God, Ezekiel stayed there for seven days by the river and refused to move. Doesn't sound like Ezekiel was on board. Doesn't sound like Ezekiel was really open to spiritual things. But God, by his call and over time, was finally able to break through Ezekiel's resistance and bring him to a place of ministry. God overwhelmed Ezekiel with signs from heaven. He says, behold, a high wind was coming from the north, 
a great cloud with fire flashing intermittently and the bright light around it. And in its midst, something gleaming, something like gleaming metal in the midst of a fire. What a strange and overwhelming sight to see. But why all this pomp and circumstance? Why the fire? Why the lightning? Why all of this backdrop? I can't say for certain why God came in such a unique and exciting way. But something about the call of God that I can personally attest to is that while the call of God is very empowering, the call also serves to make me firmly aware of just how much about life and just how much about the world I simply do not know. In other words, the call of God blows your mind. It is as if God wants to make you fully aware of how, much, how ignorant you really are, are, how unfamiliar you actually are with spiritual things. To humble you, and I am sure Ezekiel was stretched by what he saw. I am sure that Ezekiel was humbled and felt insecure, even seeing the object coming toward him so rapidly from the north, barreling down toward him, coming down from the north as if it was going to swallow him whole. I'm sure that he was humbled within. That's what happens when God calls. God comes to break. God comes to heal. God comes to tear down. And God comes to build up. Such is the call of God. When you join the military, you go through basic training three months of basic training. And every morning, bright and early, someone comes kicking your bunk, knocking you off your bunk onto the floor if you won't get up, and screaming in your face and telling you to come outside. It's time to do exercise. And they exercise you for about two hours every day. I went into the military, I was 115 pounds, a weak little man. By the time those people get finished with you, by the time they break down all of your muscle tissue, <laughs> and that's the objective when you first get there, they're, they're just breaking you down. That's what the call of God does. It comes and it just breaks you down. And it makes you feel so insecure and so unworthy and so incapable of doing anything worthy of God. That's the point. Before God puts you in ministry, he wants you to understand that you are bringing nothing to the table. You have nothing to give. <laughs> Woe to the person who comes into, into ministry thinking that he has the answers. <laughs> the call of God comes and humbles you and says, before I can put you in ministry, before I can put my hand on your life, you've got to confess that you don't know. <laughs> Looks like you used to have to go to college and, and learn and figure it out, right? I'm going to figure it out. Then I'm going to go into ministry. I was at Moody Bible Institute for 16 years. I watched it happen over and over again. The freshman comes in ready to learn, ready to go, ready to be built up, ready to know. And by the senior year, they know nothing. They're more uncertain than they were when they came. I don't know if I should go into ministry. I don't know if I should be a pastor. I don't know if I'm ready. I don't think I'm equipped. You know what I would always say? Very good, you learned the lesson. The one who comes to me and starts talking theology as a senior, I know you're not ready. No, maybe you should go work at Walmart. Maybe you should go work at Jewel or at Ford Motor Company. 
If you think you know, <laughs> all theology is really meant to do is to show you what you don't know. <laughs> all it's really meant to do is to blow your mind with how much you don't even understand. And those are the people that God wants to use. Because when you don't know, you can't put God in any particular box. You can't give God any particular definition. He can do what he wants, when he wants, because you have no rules that bind him to anything. Those are the kinds of people who do great things for God. The broken and the humble. You can't make yourself that way. I'm not asking anybody to try. All I'm asking you to do is to listen closely in quiet to see if God has called or if God is calling you. And to be confident in this very thing, that whatever great thing you do for God, you will do because of his call, not in spite of his call. And if God is calling you, he's not calling you because he sees something in you that people need. He's calling you because he sees an emptiness and a brokenness through which he can express his love for the world. And that's the call. Let's pray. What, a, what an exciting and also intimidating truth. What an exhilarating and at the same time disturbing fact that you call the broken. call the undone, that you call the unlearned. That you heal us by your call. That you ground us in truth by your call. Father, there are some under the sound of my voice today who you have been calling for a long time. Like my father, they've been refusing to answer uncertain of what it means, uncertain of the cost, uncertain of the price. Help them to realize, Father God, that that's a good thing and that is exactly the place they should be in. And that now is the perfect time to respond positively to your call, to come out onto the battlefield, to come into the fields that are so ripe for harvest, to be your spokesperson in some small way or in some great way to bring men and women to the cross of Jesus Christ and to build up the body which is here among us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your call. Thank you for the power that you have given to each one of us. Help us to exercise our faith Help us to be diligent in the work that you call us to. Bless us to remain humble and in awe of your power, your wonder, and your glory. And to do all things for the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.